welcome to the Australia India Institute podcast. Today we're speaking with Senator Lisa Singh. Lisa Singh has been an Australian senator since 2010, representing the state of Tasmania. She's regarded as the first woman of South Asian heritage to be elected to the Australian Parliament, and she has a deep interest and understanding of the Australia-India relationship. She's here to talk to us today about why Australia needs to strengthen its ties with India. Senator, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now, in 1990, an Australian Senate committee concluded that the Australia-India relationship was neglected, underdeveloped and suffered from a high state of ignorance. What have been the historical constraints in a closer Australia-India relationship? Well, it's interesting you, you draw on that Senate inquiry because even though it was 1990, it really could be a Senate inquiry of today almost because I think if we look back over those few decades, um, not a lot has changed to really build the Australia-India relationship into something closer. In, in fact, I think it's fair to say that it's been a bit of a stop-start relationship and um, our former Foreign Minister Stephen Smith once described it as um, a little bit like a T20 cricket match. (laughs) You know, slow bursts at the beginning and then, you know, it kind of, it never quite takes off. So look, I think looking at some of the constraints, there's no doubt that over the last 20 or 30 years, we as Australians have very much prospered from Asia's rise. But that rise, if we were to break down the region, it has really been China's rise. And uh, we have, in a sense, forged strong economic ties with China in a sense at the detriment of other Asian nations. And I I say that in terms of Southeast Asia as well, Pacific, but particularly India. And I think now that India is becoming the fastest growing economy in the world and set to become the third largest in in the decade ahead, that uh, we're starting to recognise the importance of India from an economic sense. But there has been so many other stronger connections that have been there for a lot lot longer that makes India a a comfortable and, you know, an easy partner to go forward with if we are going to take seriously our relationship into the future, which I hope we do. You've devoted a lot of time to improving the Australia-India relationship. What do you think are the key benefits of a closer relationship? I think, obviously, we've got a lot of shared values with India as uh, as two kind of post-colonial nations. But also, you know, I mean, where do you want to start? You could start 100 years ago when we were kind of on the battlefields of Gallipoli or you could look in more recent times. I want to move away from the, the kind of the three C's uh, mentality that's draw, drawn upon so often as being the common denominators between um, the two nations. I think that our shared path going forward is recognising the gaps that India will have and that Australia can step up and deliver on. And one of those, of course, is in education skills. I think we're here at uh, the University of Melbourne, uh, a very respected institution in that sense. One of the many institutions in Australia that uh, has that opportunity to be able to assist India in upskilling millions of young Indians, and I say young because it does have a, a very young population, that are going to need that need of education and skills that India will only be able to provide to a certain level, you know, so much because there are so many people. So 
I think going forward, education has got to be one of the important bonds that we help each other out with. But I think that should be a reciprocal bond. It shouldn't just be one way. And I think uh, something like the Colombo plan that the current government has in place is a good example of, of being able to have that reciprocal educational connection. But of course, there's many other ways that Australia and India can build its relationship. And that's why for Labor, my party, um, hopefully the alternative government going forward, we have put forward a future Asia strategy that actually includes a number of components on how we can build our connections with India going forward. And of course, as well as that, draw upon Peter Varghese AO, his recent India economic strategy report and the recommendations he made for being able to build our relationship into the future. Could you talk a little bit about the the key strategies that we could use to take the, the relationship forward? I find with my students that India and the subcontinent is the one region of Asia that they know the least about. And there's very few people around Australia that actually teach on South Asia. So I get a lot of numbers in my course because people want to know more. They know that they don't know anything and they want to know more. So what can the government do to, to help lift the veil of ignorance Ignorance, if you like. Yeah, it's it's always surprising, isn't it, to learn that there is that veil of ignorance and I'm pleased that you're out there actually providing that educational pathway for South on South Asia. Look, for Labor as an alternative government, hopefully going forward, we've kind of outlined a, a number of components, but, you know, one of them, if we look at education, for example, is about setting up a study in Australia hub in New Delhi. So we actually have that presence there for, it's not just for Australians recognising India, but India recognising and and their knowledge of Australia as well. We also want to um, increase funding that was cut from the Asian Education Foundation here in Australia. Um, We want to look at how we can create a kind of consortium of of universities that become lead partners in establishing one of the six new Indian Institutes of Technology. Again, looking at the skills needed in India, we want to have direct more direct air services between Australia and India. And that's, of course, recognising tourism as another growing service that both countries can provide each other. And I guess the, there's a number of things we want to do at a higher level, at a, whether it's a, you know, a, a foreign minister level or a, uh, a trade minister level uh, to ensure that we're, we're building that, that economic opportunity. But I think here in Australia, drawing on what you've just talked about, one of the areas that Labor's addressed also is bolstering learning a second language, particularly an Asian language, and a language like Hindi. Now, we know that Hindi is not the only language spoken in India, but, um, you know, I think when you learn a language, you learn also some of the cultural and uh, cultural nuances and customs that go with, with that particular ethnic group. So I think learning a language, again, is, is a really important way that we can connect our understanding of a particular country, particularly India. Um, I think there's a lot of Australians, as we I said earlier, that would, would know a kind of cricket schedule and, and where we're playing cricket with India, but then it stops there. And so I think starting early um, at, at that language level can really help ensure that um, Australians are learning a little bit more than cricket about this incredible continent, uh, incredible country and our incredible continent and how the two can, can for- forge stronger bonds. Let's talk about the other side. 
Do you see more enthusiasm from the Indian government and the and Indian business for a stronger relationship between India and Australia? Look, uh, I do actually, and I think um, if we look, you know, the fact that we've had in recent years visits from um, both the President of India and also the Prime Minister of India, and vice versa, um, Australian Prime Ministers have visited India. You know, that that's been f- relatively recent in the last five six years. Uh, I remember when Julia Gillard was the Prime Minister and kind of started that relationship of Prime Ministerial visits, and I know that that's something that both nations wanted to continue. Um, hopefully on an annual basis. I think that we're definitely on the map uh, when it comes to India and I understand that the Indian government's currently writing its kind of response or its own version of um, an economic strategy like uh, that written by our own um, Peter Varghese. So it'll be interesting to see how India takes um, its economic relationship with Australia in that re- in their own report, in their own words. But of course, we know that we're not the only uh, economy or the only country in India's purview. And it's had a long association with the US and with the UK and with Canada. And indeed, if we look at our diasporas in those countries, they have forged ahead, um, particularly in, at the profession level in in leaps and bounds. So uh, I think um, we're we're respected, recognised, but similarly to our own perception of our relationship with India, I think it'd be fair to say that India sees us in a similar way as in that sense of we just need to kind of give it a bit more of a bolst. Now, the business communities have a large role to play in this. Is there sufficient enthusiasm from the Australian and Indian business communities for a closer relationship? Well, look, there's been a number of trade missions. These have happened at the national level, but also at state level, state government levels in Australia. And I think those trade missions have helped business in Australia. But again, I think there's still a room for so much more that could could happen. And we do have, of course, some business councils for Australia and India and the like at both the state and, and national level. But again, that's an area where I think we need to reflect on how we can make business be more engaged in wanting to invest in India um, and have more trade opportunities for them here in Australia um, to India. I mean, there's a few case studies of successes, but we need many, many more than that if we are really going to make sure that we're part of this um, rising, fastest growing economy in the world. And I think if we look at um, the United States again as an example, I know that they they kind of a long time ago now kind of developed networks and um, reference groups of specific industries for businesses um, in that country um, to engage uh, Indian diaspora that again helped them link back with people-to-people links in India. And I think maybe we can learn from that, that um, we, we need to kind of find a, a better way to network. And I think part of that is engaging some of our diaspora here in Australia. Let's talk about the geopolitical relationship. So the other important plank aside from the economic relationship is the geopolitical relationship. But India and Australia have quite 
different views on how to secure themselves. So Australia is committed to the US alliance and a US-led regional order. India is committed to its strategic autonomy, although it's open now to issue-based alliances. So what types of issues do you think might facilitate a closer geopolitical relationship between India and Australia? Well, I think if you look back at, um, you know, a number of decades now that, um, you know, we've had this this kind of Asian century emerge and relative peace and stability in that Indo-Pacific region, uh, I think it's, it's testament to the fact that both India and Australia have uh, been committed to an international rules-based order. And that, I think, going forward is, is a strength to help our geopolitical kind of convergence. Uh, I think if we look particularly at our relationship with, with China, you know, it hasn't always agreed to some of the same uh, positions that um, countries that have adopted that international rules-based order have adhered to. So I think that's where the Australia-India relationship can be really strong going forward. And I think if we look at the institutions, those multilateral institutions that both India and Australia are part of, that helps us going forward. But I think at the same time, we should be open to India being able to play more of a role in some of those regional institutions. And that's why for Labor, our position is to is to hope that India joins APEC, for example. I think that we are two countries with shared values. And whilst India, as you pointed out, may be more inward looking, I think that's changing. I think it's slowly changing. There's always going to be some challenges, particularly when you're looking at the makeup of, of India having quite a a large rural population and the importance of subsistence farming that goes along with with um, with that. But I still think there is uh, a greater opportunity for us to build a stronger geopolitical relationship when we have shared values and we're both part of that international rules-based order. What, what do you think are the key challenges in terms of both the geopolitical relationship and the economic relationship? I mean, I think we have to be awake to the fact that, you know, we are living in a time of disruption. <laughs> um, I think that's what my my colleague, Shadow Minister Penny Wong, ha- has definitely outlined it to be. It is. It, we are living in this time of disruption and that brings with it a number of challenges when we look at the Indo-Pacific region. But I think that those challenges are something that we can turn into opportunities if we want to really um, develop a stronger relationship between our two nations. I mean, we, we look at India as, as a landmass and Australia as a landmass, but of course we share the Indian Ocean. And if you look over the last, you know, 10, 10 or more years, our maritime efforts have increased tenfold. We really have forged a really strong bond when it comes to maritime naval operations, for example. And I think that's important if we look at you know, trade. If we're talking about our economies growing into the future, and of course we've talked about India being the fastest growing economy, but Australia's economy has had an unprecedented growth ride as well over a number of years. Then we need to ensure that our, those maritime routes r- remain available for us to 
to to trade within, and so I think we've we've both recognised that as two nations, which is why India's been very open to Australia participating in those geopolitical security naval ties. The Indian Ocean has gotten a lot more attention um, from Australia in the last few years, and that's been due, in part at least, to the roles of Julie Bishop, someone from Western Australia for whom the Indian Ocean is quite important, prior to that Stephen Smith. So what would a you know a Labor government do to maintain that focus on, on the Indian Ocean? Because it's I think it's fair to say that it has been peripheral in terms of uh, the, the Australian economy and Australian strategic outlook in the past at least. Well, Labor wants to make sure that you know, the Indo-Pacific maritime environment remains stable. I mean, that's in the interests of all nations in the Indo-Pacific region, whether we're talking about India, China, our Pacific Island nations, ourselves, Indonesia. It's important that the the entire maritime environment remains stable. And that's that's what we want. And I'm sure that's what India wants as well, which is why we have had that focus over the last number of years now. But of course, it's recognising the trade that goes through there and energy products being a huge component of that. Very important for both nations. So if we look at the trade of um, refined petroleum from India to Australia, ensuring that we have that is the most important thing. And that's where I go back to the importance of those multilateral institutions that that we want India to be part of as much as our ourselves, so that we are there as sh- countries with shared values, committed to a stable maritime environment, uh, making sure that there are rules in place that keep that in check. So energy is a big sector in the relationship, so is education. Are there any other key sectors that you see as promising for a closer relationship? Well, energy, as you just touched on, is is very big, and it doesn't. Uh, I think it doesn't mean that we we keep doing things the same way when we talk about energy. I think that obviously India is very hungry for renewables as much as it has been for non-renewables. Uh, but education, I think, was the flagship that was raised by Peter Varghese, and he rightly made that so. There's a number of other areas that our relationship can grow in terms of um, agribusiness, um, expertise, both here and in India in that sense, uh, particularly when it comes to things like water and irrigation. Uh, of course, we've got, um, from my home state in Tasmania, a very strong clean green kind of brand in having um, uh, a GMO ban on on products and that makes um, a lot of our kind of niche products highly desirable to rising middle class um, uh, people uh, in India particularly. I know that obviously a lot of our our produce in terms of of lamb and um, um, seafood and those things are something that is also continuing to be desired. So I think there are other opportunities, but I still think services is is going to be the flagship for a long time because of that young population that India has. Um, and I look, the great thing about education is it means whether it's Indian students living in Australia, which at the moment I think makes up some one-third of the um, Indian Australians that are here, or whether it's Australians going to India, vice versa. Uh, I think, you know, and our institutions being based there, 
I think it means both nations learn so much more about each other, which is one of the, you know, really fantastic things that comes back to your earlier point of those students of yours that perhaps don't know so much about India. I think that if we break down, though, other areas of interest, um, tourism, as, you know, India continues to, its economy continues to rise, its middle class continues to grow, tourism will become more of an attraction as a service that Australia can provide as well. I want to talk a little bit about cultural diversity in Australian institutions, because you are, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, you are the first woman of Indian heritage to, or South Asian heritage, to serve in the Australian Senate, which is an immense achievement. But it's particularly impressive because the data shows that Asian Australians and non-European Australians in general are significantly underrepresented in leadership positions in Australia. And this is across the board in government, in business, in universities. Gareth Evans gave a speech a couple of weeks ago in which he said that, you know, in terms of cultural diversity in, in institutions, we're about 20 years behind where we are with gender diversity in the sense that there's been a lot of emphasis on, on improving gender diversity in institutions. Does this lack of cultural diversity in leadership in Australia concern you? And if it does, what what should we be doing about it? Well, it does concern me. I think if we want to break it down and look at South Asians particularly, across the board, it's something like 12% of Australia's population is people of Asian origin. But uh, of South Asian origin, that's around 3%. And yet, when you look at representation in our in our parliament or in, in you know, kind of exec level of companies or um, those leadership positions that, as you say, that they, they are lacking. And I think if we look at the Indian diaspora, as I said earlier, it's relatively young in, in, in terms of its... Um, settling in Australia. I think if you look over the last decade, it's when we've had that real rise in our Indian Indian diaspora, which now sits at around 700,000 Indian Australians here. So if you compare that to the UK or the US, I think their diasporas are a lot more established in that they, you know, migrated over a longer period of time. And you see Indian diaspora in those countries in in those leadership positions, particularly in in Parliament, but also at the business level, so we can reflect and look at those countries and how and how that happened there. But I think Gareth's right to to draw on the fact that we need to kind of know the size of the problem here first. So we do need some decent data. And that seems to be lacking, which I'm shocked about, to be honest, that we we aren't collecting uh, data on ethnic and cultural diversity amongst our working population um, at, at hardly any levels. So, so that's first, I think, what we do need to do. I think the idea of having a summit, which has been put forward for later this year, that the ANU and um, AsiaLink... Uh, a, a hosting is a way we can come together and find some solutions to, as I think Gareth says, break down the bamboo ceiling. We're a fantastic multicultural nation, but something's not quite right when we have that underrepresentation of Asian Australians at the leadership level. So we do need do need to sort it out 
I think we really need to leverage our diaspora communities that we have here, though, and whether that's on building people-to-people links for our relationship with India or whether it's about actually ensuring they are part of the political landscape, the business landscape. We certainly need to engage with them a lot more and need to work out what the barriers are. I was absolutely stunned when I was elected into the Senate that I was the only person of South Asian descent in the entire Australian Parliament. I I just didn't think it would be a thing. Um, But in that time that I've been that person, I've tried to ensure that we do connect with our diaspora a lot more that they recognise that just like me, anyone in Australia, um, as long as you're over the age of 18 and (laughs) eligible to vote, can also stand uh, for politics. And in fact, something that... um, you know, our Indian diasporas know very well is um, democratic values. Yes, like a good argument, yes. <laughs> yes. Senator, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure to meet you and to do this podcast. All right, thanks. 